We're not going to waste even a second tonight. We're going to jump right into our study in Hosea. We're going to pick up in chapter 4. As you're turning there this evening, it's really important that we keep in mind tonight the first three chapters of Hosea that function as its introduction. The reason I say that is a couple of things, so let me just remind you um, of them. Uh, First, Hosea's primary revelation, if you will, of God's character, his primary way of making God known um, is tremendously relational. Jehovah, the covenant name for God, the name he uses to reveal himself to his people Israel, shows up 46 times in this short minor prophet. And Elohim, the broader generic name for God, shows up 22 times, but 18 of those it shows up with some sort of personal possessive pronoun. My God, your God, etc. On top of that, Hosea, as a prophet, begins his ministry not with a message of words, but a message of marriage. He is called to marry a woman who then fathers him three children. As we talked about, most likely child two and child three are not Hosea's children. She is unfaithful to him. And the names of those children all reflect prophetic realities So the first one, a son, is named Jezreel. And then the second one uh, is is named not or no compassion, uh, or I suggested to you the name last week, unpitied, which is a harsh name for a daughter, especially one that doesn't belong to you. Uh, And then the third one is named not my people, or, or for short, just not mine, right? These are my kids, Jezreel, unpitied, and not mine. Um, and then we find by, uh, by a later point that um, Hosea takes his wife effectively to an ultimatum. He springs an intervention on her and demands either that she step into the family in faithfulness uh, or that she leave and she would be divorced. And then we get a third vignette where Hosea goes after his unfaithful wife, who has now um, followed her unfaithfulness into prostitution and has lost her freedom, been sold into slavery, and at price to himself, he buys her back and takes her back as his own, restores their marriage. And as God calls Hosea to do these things, he also calls Hosea to basically say, my life, Israel, is your life with God. You are the unfaithful bride. These children, their names are your future, but also begins to promise this picture of restoration. And so extreme accusations, impending judgment, and surprising grace. We're going to see that um, three-part structure over and over again in the next few weeks as we go through Hosea. And then the other thing to keep in mind is remember... God chose the metaphor here. He could have called, you know, a construction worker and said, build me a house, it'll fall over, and I want you to build it again. Instead, he goes to a man and he says, marry a woman. He chose the metaphor. The picture here is relational, it's intense, it's loving, and that is significant. 
Because as we get into the pictures of condemnation and the pictures of judgment, we need to keep that heart of God in mind. The heart of a husband who has been scorned. The heart of a husband who longs for the restoration of relationship uh, and is not the offending party. The heart of a husband who has plans to restore the relationship. And so let's open up in chapter 4. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. Okay, so he begins with a summarial description of the problem, and it's in three things. No faithfulness, no integrity, okay? No steadfast love, and that's the word hesed. It's, it's stronger than just love in its nature. It has to do with compassion. It has to do with loyalty and with commitment. And then finally, no knowledge of God. And remember, the idea of knowledge here is, is not that the name of God has been forgotten. In fact, as we'll see, some of the religious practices that define Israel, like the Sabbath and the, the moon festivals and... Uh, the sacrifices, all of those things persist. But the word here for no, it's, it's the Hebrew word yada, okay? It's the word used in Genesis when Adam knew his wife Eve and conceived a son. It's a very intimate knowledge. It speaks of personal relationship. But they are estranged from God. By choice, they are rebellious. And then he continues the accusations and gets specific in verse 2. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. Now, if you're paying attention, that's four of the Ten Commandments, right? Here he just goes to the ten words from Exodus chapter 20, and he says, let's just start with the basics, and he lays them out, swearing that has to do with false swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. It says they break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Okay, and so bloodshed follows bloodshed has this picture, right, of unending, repeated violence. It has this picture of, um, you know, uh, ret retribution and violence that spawns more violence, which spawns more violence. Therefore, he says in verse 3, the land mourns and all who dwell in it languish and also the beasts of the field and the birds of heaven and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Notice there's a connection here between the sins of Israel and the land. And this is true all the way back from the beginning. In the book of Genesis, there's a connection between the sins of humanity and the world, creation. That's why Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 that all of creation is groaning like a child in labor or a mother in labor, awaiting what? Our adoption, the redemption of the sons of God. He says, and the earth was subject to futility, right? That's a consequence, the curse of the ground, right? Adam, thorns and thistles by the sweat of your brow, all of these things correlate to the sin to the disobedience, to the rebellion of Adam and Eve. And here, it's almost as if um, Israel is going to undergo, undergo another flood, right? That's another place where we see this. 
in God's judgment in Genesis chapter 6 on the world because of mankind's sin, it's not just mankind that is punished. It's, just, it's not just mankind that experiences the consequence. But notice it's even escalated here. So notice what it says. It says, the land mourns, all who dwell in it languish, that's the people, the beast of the fields, of course, that's cows and goats, birds of the heaven, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Okay? That's, that's an upgrade from the flood. The, the flood spared, gen, generally, the fish, right? But even they are going to be subject. It's a, it's a statement of extreme consequence. Verse 4, Yet let no one contend, and let none accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. And he says, hold on. Stop pointing fingers. Right? Another thing that goes all the way back to the beginning of Genesis. As soon as Adam eats of the tree and God comes and asks, what does he do? He points fingers. The woman that you gave me. And she points to the serpent. The serpent deceived me and I ate. And here, it's as if the accusation comes over Israel and everybody has reasons and excuses for their behaviors. Well, you don't understand what they had done to me. And you don't understand in such and such. And he says, quiet. I've got my own finger pointing to do. And he says, my contention is with you, O priest. He speaks here to the religious leaders of Israel and lays a significant amount of the responsibility at their feet he says in verse 5, you shall stumble by day, the prophet shall also stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you, who? The priests. You have rejected knowledge. Therefore, I reject you from being a priest to me. Now, when we go back to the book of Exodus, we find that the priests were entrusted with the instruction of Israel in the ways of God. But during this time, during the 8th century, uh, the priests became, if you will, hijacked by the religious practices of Baal. They were synchronistic. They started to incorporate other religions into their practices, and they taught those as well. Being in a place of religious authority and, and speaking for God, they began to use that authority to lead people away from God. And so he says, because of that, my people are destroyed because they are deceived. For lack of knowledge, this is coming on them. He says, because you have rejected knowledge. He says, I reject you from being a priest to me, and since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children the more they increased, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. The idea of increase there draws us back to the promises that God gave Abraham. I will make you fruitful. I will multiply you. You will increase in the land. But as God blesses them, their disobedience, their sins against him, the crimes increase as well. And so what was to be glorifying and manifesting the goodness of God has become shameful. And in the same way, he says, I'm going to reverse your glory into shame as well. Going back to the priests in verse 8, they feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity. 
it seems like here that Hosea is playing with a, uh, a particular image. The word for sin in the Old Testament and the word for the sin offering, the, the lamb that was sacrificed on behalf of sin in the guilt offering, is the same. Okay? And so you don't have that extra word offering in the Hebrew. And so it says here, they feed on the sin of my people. Now, actually, the sin offering was partially eaten by the priests. Part of that offering was for their provision, and it was something that only the priests could eat. But notice here it says, they feed on the sin of my people, and they're greedy for their iniquity. Now, I don't think this is exactly what Hosea is talking about, but I think it's a good touch point for us to get in the right picture. The idea is as if the priests are like, well, the more the people sin, the more we have to eat. Right? The more that people need God's forgiveness, the more they bring the sin offerings and the more we have in our larder, in our pantry. Okay? Again, I don't think that's the actual thinking of the priests. Instead, he's playing with the idea here that they are the ones that are leading with vigor the people of Israel into these wicked ways. They're the ones uh, who are drawing Israel away And again, it's because of their role and their authority. It shall be, verse 9, like people, like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. Now, there's a significant note there. It's one that the Bible often chimes. God makes a correlation between authority and responsibility. He makes a correlation between high places of power and accountability for those places of power. But that does not absolve or excuse those who follow. It does not absolve or excuse those who are under their care. He says, I'm going to hold you responsible and I will punish them as well. But I think we can imagine appropriately there's a graded scale in that. There's a recognition of justice here. But it's worth pointing out for you that the devil, the serpent deceived me and I ate didn't get Eve off the hook any more than buying into the false teachings of those who are misleading the people. In fact, although there are a handful of passages in the New Testament that put an emphasis, a warning, on those who teach. For example, James says, I don't think, I don't think many people should be teachers because teachers will be held in higher account. They have a higher responsibility. So he says, don't enter the office lightly. And of course, there are warnings throughout the New Testament about falsely representing God, but there are way more numerous warnings to all of us in how we hear. Most of the time, the exhortations that Jesus gives in his sermons is, He who has ears, let him hear. In Revelation for the churches, it doesn't speak just to the pastors, but to all the church. Let the church hear what the Spirit is saying. It warns that in latter days, many will have itching ears and gather false teachers for themselves who will give them the words that they want to hear. Okay. And so there is a shared responsibility here, but it is, it is graded. He recognizes that the priests have done the people a disservice because they have not been faithful to the God who called them. He continues here in verse 10, they shall eat but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore, 
but not multiply because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and noon wine, which take away the understanding. Okay, and so he says here, effectively, that they're going to continue to chase the things they've been chasing. They're going to continue, you know, to rub the lamp of their idolatry and make their wishes, but it's not going to happen anymore. They're going to come up empty. They're not going to receive what they're looking for anymore. And it's worth remembering that this is a mercy. I think many of us have experienced this. In fact, there's a, um, a relatively stable pattern of the way that idolatry works in our life. And by idolatry, I just mean taking anything that is not God and setting it up as being the thing that gives your life meaning or gives you security or gives you a sense of worth or satisfaction. What you worship is the thing that you say, as long as I have this, everything will be good. Or... What you, what you say, if only I had this, then everything will be good. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus illustrates this principle when it comes to money, to mammon. And so he speaks to the wealthy, and he says, you cannot worship God and mammon. And speaking to the wealthy, he says, don't store up your treasures where moth can destroy and thieves can break in and steal and rust can eat it away. But then he turns to the poor and he says, don't worry about what you need. What am I going to eat? What am I going to wear? Do you see how both of those are manifestations of the same thing of you cannot worship God and money? One says, if only I had, then life would be good. The other says, because I have, then life is good. But the problem is the same. But here's what happens. The pattern of idolatry always plays out this way. It starts by offering greatly and usually rewarding. This is what a New Testament author calls the deceitfulness of sin. We taste it, it tastes good. We eat the fruit, and it satisfies. But what happens over time is like an addict. That satisfaction decreases with every consecutive exposure. Or, to put it a different way, the idols demand more and more and pay out less and less. It's like the way your iPhone smart app games work, right? At first, you play and you've got 24 hours of no lives, no need to pay anything, and then you're hooked. And then suddenly they throttle back the performance. And now you're going, oh man, yesterday was such a good day. How do I get that back? And you're drawn in, right? And then ultimately, just like we saw with Hosea's wife, Gomer, what looks like freedom becomes slavery. Okay. Now that is both the horror of idolatry and also the mercy of God. Okay. That God has designed it so that, so that we cannot be satisfied with things that do not satisfy for very long. I wanted to point out one other thing in verse 10. He says, because they've forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine. Okay. And then he continues on and he says, which take away the understanding. Wine does this, 
right? You drink too much, you think poorly. New wine, we go, wait a minute, how does that work? Because new wine is just grape juice, it's unfermented juice. So in what way does new wine take away the understanding? Well, remember what new wine is in the Old Testament for Israel, it's a celebration. It's joy, it's let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. It's wealth in all of its benefits, it's comfort and these types of things, but that also removes understanding. It becomes like an, uh, an anesthetic. It, comes, it, comes, it becomes a way to numb our pain instead of treating it. Okay. And then the last one here, whoredom, which broadly throughout the book of Hosea is talking about spiritual infidelity, idolatry, instead of worshiping God, but also clearly includes sexual unfaithfulness. And this is also another thing that removes understanding. Okay. When we talk about love being crazy, a lot of times we just mean sexual desire causing people madness. Right. And we see, in fact, the same addiction patterns in all of these things. Okay. They take away the understanding. Another way to put it, according to the New Testament, is that sin makes us blind. Okay. And spiritual blindness is a serious problem because unlike physical blindness, you aren't aware that you're spiritually blind. Physical blindness, generally you get that. You understand that. You comprehend that. You may not know what you're missing, but you know that you can't see. But spiritual blindness means that when we expose ourselves and walk long patterns of sin... We tell ourselves lies, or we make justifications or excuses, and then we buy them. We believe them. We start to believe our own report of what's happening. We begin to not see how our lives affect other people or even our own lives. Okay? This is the concept that he's imparting in verse 10. And he says, let me illustrate what without understanding looks like. Verse 12, my people inquire of a piece of wood and their walking staff gives them oracles. Okay, he's talking here about a particular practice, a particular way of discerning the future, which has to do with throwing a stick up in the air and paying attention to how it lands. Okay? Now, we would pretty naturally label that as superstition, but just recognize that oftentimes, this is how it works. You, you get this gateway into power, knowing the future, revelatory practices, and then it gets into you, and you start expanding your repertoire, and we've met people like this who, who do really weird things because, we think they, because they think they matter, you know, and so here is the lack of understanding, and remember, this isn't just bad ideas because it's just a stick, okay? Remember that for the Old Testament and the New Testament together, the danger of the spiritual realm is not that it doesn't exist, right? Like, um, uh, like Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Did you know that he had an obsession with showing that psychics and the like were, fit, were frauds? It was his other pastime. He wrote detective novels and he revealed that these people were frauds and fakes, okay? And I have no doubt the world is full of psychic charlatans. Okay. But the danger for Christians, according to the Bible, is not that there is fake ones out there. It's that there's real ones. 
And, and not necessarily real psychics, but people tapping into real hidden realities. G.K. Chesterton liked to quip. He said, why is it that the only options are either this human being is deceiving you or the spirits are trustworthy and the human being is telling the truth? He says, shouldn't it be that there's a deception behind the truth teller? Shouldn't it be, couldn't it be that there's a deception on the spiritual realm? That's the lack of understanding. It's playing with things you do not understand and assuming that they have your best intentions at heart. But more importantly than that, what is the irony of verse 12? My people inquire of a piece of wood. This is the God who reveals himself, the God who speaks. The God who, as it says in Psalm 19, through the heavens declare the glory of God and has provided his word in the scriptures. And people go, yeah, 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 hold on, I'm talking to a stick. Right? Do you see the contrast there? That's what makes this so ironic to Hosea. And then he explains where it comes from halfway through verse 12. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. In Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah uses a different metaphor than playing with sticks or prostitution. He uses the metaphor of water. He says, my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and have made for themselves pots, broken pots that can't hold any water. Okay? And so here we have a well tapped into a underground spring, a renewable source of water. And instead, they make clay pots to catch the rain, and they're broke, so they leak. That's the contrast. But I think it's significant, the order. It's not they made pots and then turned away from the well. It's they turned away from the well and made pots. And it's always that way. It's the way that we see it in Hosea. They have left their God to play the whore. They have turned away from God and turned unto idols. They have plugged their ears against the truth, suppressed the truth and unrighteousness, to use the words of Romans, and then have been given over to foolishness and made for themselves gods in the form of creation. Verse 13, they sacrifice on the top of mountains and burnt offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth because the shade is good. And again, I think this is an illustration of a lack of understanding. These places, these mountaintop worship places, were all condemned in the Old Testament because they were always tied to the worship of the gods of the Canaanites. But here, do you see the explanation that's given by one of these worshipers? Oh, well, I like to worship on the mountaintops because it's in the shade. Okay. That's, that's the idea here, is, is that they lack understanding. He says, therefore, your daughters play the whore and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery, for the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes, and a people without understanding shall come to ruin. Okay? So notice, there are things here that the worshipers of Israel don't like, the behavior specifically of their wives and daughters. And he says, but you started it. Your infidelity has bred infidelity. Your example has led to these things and so he says, he, he, again, he recognizes authority and responsibility and lays the blame where it belongs. 
In fact, if Hosea is any guide, for these men who are hurt by the unfaithfulness of their brides, it should reflect back their own unfaithfulness. And not just to their spouses, but to their unfaithfulness to God. And yet that's part of the lack of understanding. And we experience this all the time, don't we? We are much more offended by the sins of others against us, even when our sins are the exact same against them, right? We use a different set of scales when we judge others than when we judge ourselves. Verse 15, though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Remember, in the days of Hosea, we have the northern tribes, Israel, capital Samaria, also known as Ephraim. And we have the southern tribes, the kingdom of David, right? Judah. Okay. And so here he says, Israel, you're going in this way. And he says, Judah, don't follow in her footsteps. Hosea lived among and served primarily in the northern kingdom, but he outlives the northern kingdom. By the time Hosea closes his ministry, Israel has been sacked by Assyria and taken away, and Judah is remaining standing. And so he doesn't miss the opportunity here to say, are you paying attention, Judah? And yet we know, like it says in Ezekiel, that Judah sees the example of Israel, their unfaithfulness and their judgment, and they still follow suit, knowing where that road already leads. Okay? But here there's a warning. The warning is, enter not into Gilgal, no, nor go up to Beth-Avon, and swear not as the Lord lives. Okay? Gilgal and Beth-Avon are famous places of idolatrous worship in the northern tribes' territories. In fact, the second one there, Beth-Avon, you're familiar with. It's just not the way Hosea says it. He's referring to Bethel. Okay? Bethel, the place where Jacob has that vision of the ladder and the angels ascending and descending, and he says, surely this place is Bethel, the house of God. But like Amos before him, Hosea changes the name here to Beth-Avon, the house of deception. Okay. He just modifies the name to make a point that it's no longer the house of God. Now it's a place where deception happens, where worship of idols happens. And so he says, Judah, don't follow suit. Don't think, I'm tiring of the temple in Jerusalem. Maybe I'll go check out Gilgal. Like a stubborn heifer, verse 16, Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in broad pasture? Okay. The idea is, you know, in, in our modern proverb, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Right? If the heifer won't go to the places where they can feed healthy, then what is a shepherd to do? Verse 17, Ephraim is joined to idols, leave him alone. One of my favorite childhood films was The NeverEnding Story. Actually, it's one of my favorite adult films. Uh, but there's a point where Atreyu, this hero warrior, is traveling through the swamp of sadness, and Artex, his horse, gives in to the sadness. And honestly, I have no idea how they get a horse to behave so well on screen because they basically sink this horse up to the neck. And Atreyu, with all of his might, is trying to convince his horse to come out of the swamp to keep walking because he's sinking, and he just slowly, slowly sinks. That's the idea here. 
The idea is that God is trying to draw them away from these paramours and from these lovers, and they won't leave. And so the only option left to God is to leave them, to leave them alone. When their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. Their rulers dearly love shame. A wind has wrapped them in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. Verse 19, a wind has wrapped them in its wings. I do not know what that means. And as far as I can tell, commentators don't either. It may be here as if they're caught up in a whirlwind, right? Maybe that's what it means when a wind wraps uh, somebody in its wings and carries them away, right? It may be, you know, Dorothy, who's not in Kansas anymore. Um, but there's another suggestion. In Hebrew, the word for wind is the same word for breath and the same word for spirit, ruach, okay? And so another way to translate this is a spirit has wrapped them in its wings, in which case it would be the spirit of whoredom, this idea that we've already encountered, okay? The idea here is that they are no longer in control, but they have given themselves totally over to this reality. Again, in seeking of freedom away from God, instead they have become enslaved to those who are not God. Chapter 5. Hear this, O priests. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king. Okay. And so again, there's a transition here, not just to priests, but the house of Israel. Uh, for stand-in for tonight, think, um, think Senate. Think Congress. Okay, it's, it's talking about the upper echelon of Israel's lay leaders, the elders. Okay? And then, finally, it speaks of the king. It says, For judgment is for you, for you have been a snare at Mizpah, and a net spread upon Tabor, and the revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. Now, you may not remember this, but Israel's beginning the northern tribe's beginning of going wrong is at the hands of a king. A king by the name of Jeroboam, who God has selected as a judgment on the house of Solomon. And he says, ten of the tribes are going to be under you and your children. You're going to reign over them. He gets real nervous about how this is going to work if all of those people continue to go to Jerusalem and worship at the temple right next to David's palace. Okay, right next to Solomon's palace, right next to Solomon's son Rehoboam's palace. And so he goes, well, let's make a new temple. In fact, he makes two golden calves and puts them, one at the north end of Israel and one at the south end, and he says, this is your God, worship this. And that is literally according to, um, to First Kings, the beginning of the end. That's the first time that the ultimate destruction that comes hundreds of years later is mentioned. It starts there. But that also continues. Probably no places it manifests more than the Omer, uh, Omeride king, son of the son of Omer, okay, of the dynasty of Omer, uh, Ahab. Right? Under Ahab's wife Jezebel, she starts a huge religious revival in worshiping Baal. She has 400 court prophets all on the payroll for Baal. She leads Israel through the authority of her husband astray. That's what's being talked about here. Okay? Verse 3, I know Ephraim 
and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore, Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God, for the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. You see how that seems to point to what I said at the end of the last chapter about this wind that's fully carried them away? Here it's the spirit, or the wind, literally, of whoredom that has carried them away, and now they're ensnared, they're enslaved. There's a George MacDonald book. If you're not familiar with George MacDonald, C.S. Lewis said he never said anything that he didn't steal from George MacDonald. He was a Scottish author, wrote a lot of books. But in Sir Gibby, there's a woman who, who starts out, and she has a bar, but she doesn't drink. And she justifies having this bar. I don't know how George MacDonald felt about alcohol. That might affect the story a little bit. But she justifies having this bar because at least she watches over the men in her bar doesn't let them drink too much, make sure they get home safely. Better they drink here than somewhere else. But she would never drink. And then she falls on hard times, and the bar empties out a little bit. And one night she goes, well, it works for other people, and she begins to drink. And pretty soon it becomes an addiction. And pretty soon she's neglecting her work, and she's not opening the bar, and she's just drinking alone in her bedroom. And there's an occasion where she's sitting there, just in her thoughts, like she's done every night, night after night, drinking, and she hears a voice from heaven saying, one more drink and you'll be damned. And it's like the final warning light, and she wakes up, realizes what is happening, and, and throws away the drink. Now, that's intense, and that's one of the things I love about George MacDonald. He had no problem with being intense. But what he is recognizing is something that the Bible points to continuously, which is that there are if you will, points of no return. Okay? There is a danger in our sin that it ensnares and enslaves and makes it impossible to turn around. Now, the good news in the gospel is that God is okay taking dead things and making them alive. Okay? The good news in the gospel is that where we would draw that line in someone else's life and say they are a lost cause, that's when Jesus goes and looks for the one and leaves the 99. But nonetheless, there persists this idea that although we may not know where the line is, there is a seriousness to the enslaving nature of sin. There is a danger in these things, and that, of course, is part of why God condemns them and calls us away from them. He warns us about them. And that's the state of Israel. They're fully given over. No return or repentance. Over the course of Israel's whole history, the southern tribe has four great revivals, four great kings who lead national revivals and stay or slow, if you will, the coming judgment. Israel, zero. Never once is there a full national return to God. Verse 5, the pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah shall also stumble with them. With their flocks and herds, they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. Now, the idea there isn't one of, uh, of it's too late to repent. The idea here isn't like Esau sought repentance with tears but could not find it, which I'm glad I don't have to talk about tonight. The idea instead is they're going about their lives as if God is still present and he's not. They think that they're seeking the Lord, and they've settled for less than him, and they have lost that awareness. It's like in the book of Judges. Okay, Saul, uh, um, Samson is given 
this gift of strength. And it's tied to his role as a Nazarite. Don't cut your hair. Don't drink. Don't be around dead bodies. And he plays with the rules of that and ignores them and avoids them. And eventually he's broken all of them but his hair. And this woman named Delilah is just out to destroy him and is using her sexual prowess to just seduce him into telling the secret of his strength. And he lies about it. And then he almost lies about it. And eventually he tells her. And in in that passage comes, I think, one of the scariest sentences in all of Scripture. She shaves his head. All of these, you know, marauders jump in to attack him. And she wakes him up and she says, Samson, you're being attacked. And it says, and Samson went out just as he had done before. Meaning he went out expecting the strength to be there. He went out assuming that God was with him and not knowing that he was now abandoned. Okay? It's like a cop in a really, really bad neighborhood walking out the front door thinking he's wearing his bulletproof vest, and he's not. Okay? The same idea is here. It's not that they can no longer repent. It's that they don't know they need to. They think everything is fine. He has withdrawn from them, verse 7, they have dealt faithlessly with the Lord, for they have borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. Okay, and so basically, again, he says that their false worship, their worship of the lunar calendar, these things, now it's going to be their end and not their life. Verse 8, blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah, sound the alarm in Beth-Avon, We follow you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment among the tribes of Israel. I make known what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move a landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. Now this is one of the harder parts of Hosea. Because whereas he had just warned Judah and said, don't follow, now he says, I'm going to judge Judah. And on top of that, He says, the princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Let's deal with the metaphor first before we ask what he's talking about. In the Old Testament, one of the things that is condemned in the book of Deuteronomy is the moving of a landmark, okay? The idea here is your boundary marker between your property and your neighbors, and slowly in the night, you just push it another foot, right? And quietly over time, you just take more and more of their land, okay? That's the idea. The question is here, what in the world is he condemning the princes of Judah for? Now, one of the things that happens during Hosea's lifetime is the Syro-Ephraimite War, okay, where Syria and the northern tribes of Israel join forces to resist the power of Assyria, ask Judah to join them well, and then when Judah refuses, decides to double up on Judah and attack them, okay? You can read about this in Isaiah 7. The problem is, in Isaiah 7, it's Ephraim that is the attacker. It's Ephraim who, if you will, is moving the boundary stones and seeking to take the land of Judah. And so many commentators believe what Hosea is talking about here is in that same period of time, but not that exact war. As you can expect, there's probably a little bit of give and take that leads into those things. 
In fact, when you read Isaiah, it's super surprising that Israel, the northern tribes, align themselves with Syria. It's super surprising that they threaten their own people, the rest of Israel, the tribes of Judah. And so maybe here Hosea is giving us a little bit of backstory, and there had actually been a little bit of civil war boundary skirmishes, and what happens in the Syro-Ephraimite war is more complicated than we read about in Isaiah. But either way, here is the first time Hosea says, oh, by the way, judgment is also coming for Judah. Okay. Verse 11, Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to go after filth. Okay. Now, this historical reference is a little bit easier. Okay. Because what happens is during this time, that little Syria-Israel joining forces thing, it doesn't work at all. Assyria comes in and trounces them, and basically, uh, basically like the bully and the lunch money, says, all right, from here on out, Ephraim, from here on out, you got to pay me monthly. You're going to tax your people, and I'm going to take all of it. Okay? And so instead of returning to God and expecting him to give the victory, they go, okay. That is what it's talking about here when it talks about the, the precepts of filth. Um, uh, the idea here is that they, um, or, or sorry, I, this is important. So in the ESV here it says, because they were determined to go after filth. But the Hebrew there is a little complex, and another way to read it is because they were determined to go after human precepts. Okay. And so the idea commentators believe is the human precept here is the tax code of Assyria, and them just succumbing to that instead of going to God for help. Verse 12, but I'm like a moth to Ephraim, like dry rot to the house of Judah. Okay. Verse 13, when Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, and Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king. Okay. So the idea here is that Ephraim realizes things are bad, and so he seeks to strike a deal with Mr. Powerful. Okay. At this point, Assyria is the up-and-coming power of the known world. And so Israel decides to get buddy-buddy with him, get him on my side, because then he won't be my enemy. Okay? But he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. Okay? Assyria can't save you, because this is my discipline, this is my doing, because I'm the one who wounded you, if you will. He says, verse 14, For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, and like a young lion to the house of Judah, I, even I, will tear and go away. I'll carry off, and no one shall rescue. Which, of course, is what happens. Assyria, of all people, the one that Israel appealed to, ends up realizing, wow, they're so weak, we don't have to just tax them. We can just destroy them. We can take their land. We can reroute them. Um, and so God ends up using them to judge Israel. Verse 15, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face, and in their distress, earnestly seek me. Okay, so he says, I'm going to bring judgment, and then I'm going to wait until now that they have nothing, they seek me again. Like Gomer in the opening chapters, now that she's enslaved, she sees her husband for who he really is. Verse 1 of chapter 6, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, so that he may heal us. 
He has struck us down and he will bind us up. When I was a kid, my five-year-old cousin was chasing my seven-year-old cousin through the house. And the seven-year-old cousin went out the front door and we lived in Yakima, so we had a, a, um, a screen door. And before my five-year-old cousin got out the door, the screen door shut and he went through it. Actually, to be technical, he hit it and his foot went under it and it just took the skin right off his foot and he needed stitches. So my five-year-old cousin is sitting before the doctor and the doctor is stitching him up and he looks the doctor in the eye and through his tears he says, you're not being very nice to me, right? That's, that's the thing here. He says, don't you understand that I'm harming you to heal you? Don't you understand here that this is painful but it is for your benefit? And so Hosea puts out the call, let us return to the Lord for he's torn us so that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. And so there's a speedy recovery put here, and it's put in the measure of days, okay? Which is a significant thing, is it not, for a nation that's been destroyed to be returned to being a nation three days later, right? It may be even more significant than that because the third day... Even in the Old Testament, before we get to the resurrection on the third day, has kind of this place of restoration in mind consistently. In fact, it's really interesting, but Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that Jesus died according to the scriptures, was buried, and on the third day rose again according to the scriptures. And that's always been one that readers of the Bible scratch their head about and go, where does it say that he'll be raised again on the third day in the scriptures, which would be the Old Testament when Paul was writing. Some have suggested that it's in this, that the national restoration of Israel here is directly tied to the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ, in which case this isn't necessarily a prophecy as it is an analogy, okay? That Jesus is the true Israel and therefore restored on the third day just as Hosea said. Verse uh, 3, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. In other words, we may not have been faithful, but God is faithful. John tells us if we confess our sins, that God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The problem is not that Israel is too far gone for God to heal. It's that they won't come to him. And so here, Hosea makes this call, but notice the pivot in verse 4. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Right? You know how sometimes we wake up on a Seattle morning and there's fog everywhere? But by 10 a.m. it's gone. He says... That's how good your love is to me. It's, it's words, it's promises, but you're constantly writing checks your faithfulness can't cash. In fact, that makes us think that here, this call that Hosea makes, if you will, it kind of goes unheeded. He lays it out and he says, we can return now, we can avoid all of this if you'll just repent, but no response. I want you to notice here that God says, what shall I do with you? Because we're going to see that again in chapter 11. 
And it's a weird thing for God to say, isn't it? Because God has a plan. He's laid it out, every jot and tittle. He's laid it out. So what does it mean here? Does it mean that God is scratching his head going, I don't know how to figure this out? No, remember, here he's the husband. What this is is an expression of his love and care and concern. Those of you who have had long-standing wayward children or brothers or sisters who have just made their own choices and your compassion and your love for them is unending, but you get to a point where you just don't know what to do, right? And it's not just because you're a little finite being who doesn't have all the answers. It's because you're not ready to give up. That's the heart that's expressed here when God says this. He says, what am I going to do with you, right? Therefore, verse 5, I've hewn them by the prophets. I've slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And he says, I've given them my warnings, right? When he says, I've slain them by the words of the prophets, the idea here is I've told them where all of this is leading, and they haven't stopped. They're still running full long, head bore, uh, or full bore, headlong towards this judgment. But the whole time this is going on, so is their lip service to still being the people of God. So is, especially in Judah, where the temple still is, as Jeremiah tells us, they're always saying, the temple, the temple, the temple. He says here, but don't you understand I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice? I desire relationship and not burn offerings? Now, Hosea isn't throwing the entire Levitical playbook, you know, on the floor. The idea here is that they have an external religious semblance of worship. But there's no relationship. There's no heart. When he says here, steadfast love, that's that word hesed again. It's that word compassion. And interestingly enough, the way that compassion for God becomes evident, because how do you have compassion on a God who needs nothing? According to the Old Testament, is how we take care of those around us who are in need. Jesus says the same thing in Matthew chapter 25. He separates people into two sides, the sheep and the goats. And he says, sheep, enter into the joy that I've set before you because when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was sick, you nursed me back to health. And they say, when did we see you? And Jesus says, as much as you did this to any of your brethren, you did it unto me. Jonathan Edwards says, uh, basically, that God has chosen the poor as a stand-in for him, as receivers of our love for God. The idea is the same here. He's not just saying, I want you to say, I love you more often, Israel, to me. I, I want you to spend more time in prayer. He's saying, I want you to love the people around you. We'll see this especially when we get to Micah, but the worship of the true God leads to a life of justice, righteousness, compassion, meeting needs, etc. That's why Jesus criticizes those around him in his ministry using this very verse, Hosea 6.6. 6. He says to the Pharisees, the so-called religious leaders of his day, he says, you should go and figure out what this means when Hosea says that I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He says, you tithe your mint and your cumin but you leave the larger things like justice and mercy completely undone. You strain a gnat and you swallow a camel. 
Okay. He draws it from here. Now, verse 7. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly, uh, faithlessly with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers tracked with blood. As robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together, they murder on the way to Shechem. And one of the things that's really neat about Hosea is he's really fond of Genesis. And all three of these references, Adam, Gilead, and Shechem, they're allusions to things that happened in Genesis. In fact, the first one is kind of the tell, because he says, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. But notice what it says, there they dealt faithlessly with me. Okay. Adam's not a place, it's a person. So what does it mean in Adam, they dealt faithlessly with me? If you read the book of Joshua, we discover that there is a city called Adam in Israel, but that's the only place it's mentioned, unless this is a mention to it here. What I would suggest is the best way to understand this is he's, he's actually playing with the namesake of the city. Like Adam, the person, they transgressed, they dealt faithlessly with me at Adam, the place. Remember how it was with Adam? It was rebellion, right? Out of all the trees of the garden you can eat, just this one, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, do not eat, and if the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And he says, but they're just like Adam. We've been seeing this for a while, right? The problem with Israel isn't just skin deep. It's not behavior and attitude. It's the heart level, like Adam, right? It goes back to the beginning, Gilead is a city of evildoers tracked with blood. Here's what you can't see in that text. It's not actually tracked with blood. It's literally footprints of blood. And the, the root word there for footprints is the same word for the name Jacob. Okay. So why is Gilead of significance with Jacob? That's the place where he has Laban behind him and Esau coming to him in force. It's where he finally bottoms out, okay, and so here, though, Gilead is a city of evildoers. Effectively, that's the place where Israel becomes Israel. But now Israel's just gone back to being Jacob. They're just the deceitful, faithless. And then the last one here is Shechem. Now, Shechem is a significant place for a lot of reasons. But the one in Genesis is maybe the most interesting because notice what it says as robbers lie in wait for a man so the priests band together they murder on the way to Shechem they commit villainy okay two things about this notice here the idea is one of murder and then second the priests are banding together and they're murdering on the way of Shechem this is a plot right the idea is like roadside bandits who hop out beat people up take their stuff in Genesis 34, Shechem is the place when Jacob enters back into the land and he settles next to this city known as Shechem. And the king of the Shechemites, the leader, his son's really attracted to Jacob's daughter Dinah and he takes her and he rapes her. And Jacob is a little bit nervous about being in the land so he doesn't demand the right thing is done, he just ignores it. And his sons, specifically Simeon and Levi, Okay, see how Levi is important here? The priests band together. <coughs> Simeon and Levi come up with an idea, and what they decide is they go to the Shechemites and they say, actually, you know, we can all intermarry and trade, and we'll live here, and we'll become one people. There's just one thing. For us to do that, you have to get circumcised. 
And all the men go, well, it's worth it. I guess we'll do it. And while they're healing from their circumcision, Levi and Simeon go house to house and murder every man in the city. Okay. It's an awful story. But now Levi's gone back to his roots. Right? God graciously takes that Levi and makes him the family that will be the priest for Israel. But now it's like they've gone back to murdering in, in the city of Shechem. But remember here, the idea here is not that priests are killing actual people physically with a knife. They're doing it by leading them to gods that cannot save them, right? And so the plot here uh, is idolatrous. Verse 10, in the house of Israel, I've seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed when I restore the fortunes of my people. Now again, all of a sudden, in the midst of all this judgment, we, we see, you know, a rainbow after the storm. We see a positive. We see restoration. God sustains that. Let's finish here with chapter 7. When I would heal Israel, the iniquity is revealed and the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely. Now, it may be here saying, when I'm right on the cusp of setting things right, there they go again in their unfaithfulness. But the Hebrew here literally is closer to when I heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim will be revealed. Okay? And this reminds us of what we saw in Ezekiel, where God says, I'm going to restore you in such a way that you'll finally be ashamed of your past. Okay? And I don't know about you, but as a Christian who didn't grow up in the church but responded to Jesus, that really resonates with me. Like, I didn't really feel that bad about my sins before I knew Jesus, but when I encountered him, it changed the way I viewed my entire past. That's the idea here. When I restore you, you're going to share my perspective on how awful those sins were. Okay. It's not like Gomer, Hosea's wife, comes back and says, look, let's just agree to disagree about the past 30 years and start again. Right? No, it's I cannot believe I treated you that way. That was awful. I'm so ashamed of who I was. Can you forgive me? You see the difference? That's the difference that he's talking about. He says, For they deal falsely. The thief breaks in and bandits raid outside. But they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them and they are before my face. By their evil they make the king glad and the princes by their treachery. Again, the leaders are condemned because they applaud the wickedness going on. They celebrate the evil. They reward it. Verse 4, they are all adulterers. They're like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it's leavened. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with mockers. For with hearts like an oven, they approach their intrigue, all night their anger smolders, and in the morning it blazes like a flaming fire. He's mixing two images together here, maybe even three. Okay, There's drunkenness, there's political intrigue, and there's a baker who neglects his oven. Okay, And so remember, this, this is an old oven. It's, it's um, you know, coals, and you heat it, and you've got to get the temperature just right, because if it's too hot, everything will burn. But this baker just goes to bed. And he wakes up in the morning and he's like, let's make some bread, but he hasn't been tending the fire all night. It's not at the right temperature. And so it just burns everything that goes into it. 
And so the picture there is one of passivity, inactivity, neglect. Okay. And how is that neglect playing out? The king is so busy getting drunk that he doesn't realize he's become a puppet to the evil attentions of the people around him. Okay. And so this is not a king who has evil intentions and is driving for bad. It's a king who's neglecting his responsibility and being taken advantage of. Okay, verse 7, all of them are as hot as an oven, and they devour their rulers. All the kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. Remember what I said about the life that Hosea lives in Israel? Six kings, 30 years, every single one of them murdered by their replacement. Okay, that's what he's talking about here. It's a mess. Eight, now he modifies the metaphor a little bit. Ephraim mixes himself with the people's. Ephraim is a cake not turned, okay? The idea here is going back to that baking image, but he doesn't flip the cake halfway through. So it's burned on one side, and it's raw and doughy on the other side, okay? Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it's not. Gray hairs are sprinkled on him, and he knows it's not. Now, the word hairs isn't there, and so I read a really good suggestion today that the problem is not that he's old and doesn't get it, which is how we read it, but that he's mold and doesn't get it. Okay, the idea here is here is he's this loaf of bread, but through the neglect of the baker, it's, it's gone all moldy. And he doesn't know it. He's like, I'm a healthy piece of bread. And he's just, you know, one that nobody wants. The idea here is embarrassing. It's one of Israel seeing itself like one of the major powers of the world. And it doesn't understand how messed up everybody knows it is, how poor it's like north korea right verse 10 the pride of israel testifies to his face yet do they do not return to the lord their god nor seek him despite all this ephraim is like a dove silly and without sense calling to egypt going to assyria let me help you with the metaphor here i know we don't know a lot about doves imagine a homing pigeon that doesn't remember where home is that's the idea here okay his Ephraim has been trained to go to God when he needs help. And instead he's like, who can help me? Well, I'll go to Egypt. Oh, well, maybe I'll go to Assyria, right? Going down the list and forgetting the only one who can help. As they go, he says in verse 12, I will spread over them my net. I will bring them down like the birds of the heaven. I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. Woe to them, for they've strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them. They speak lies against me. They do not cry to me from their heart, but they wail upon their beds. I don't know about you, but that one's convicting to me. Right? Do you understand the difference between crying and crying out? That's the difference that he points out here. He's like, I'm here. I'm available. You know, uh, like that Depeche Mode song, your own personal Jesus. Just pick up the phone. I'm right there. And instead, they just cry and cry and cry into their pillows. Okay. He says, for grain and wine, they gash themselves and rebel against me. Remember the prophets of Baal? They do that to try and summon fire. The idea here is that they're harming themselves, trying to get Baal's attention, when God, who's real and present, would be happy to help them. Verse 15, although I trained and I strengthened their arms... Yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. 
Okay. The idea here, you know how a bow works, right? You've got the, the taut string that you pull back. But what happens when the wooden part of the bow gives way when you pull? Okay. I know personally what happens. You almost lose an eye. Okay. You don't string a bow right, and you pull it back. You release all that tension, and the bow goes instead of the arrow. That's the idea here. Okay. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. They, uh, this shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. Okay. Now, that is the end of this oracle, and I want you to notice where it ends. It ends in Egypt. Now, literally, historically, even in Hosea, that's not the plan. The plan is Assyria, so why mention Egypt here? Because that's where the story of Israel begins. Effectively, here, because of their unfaithfulness, it's like a reverse exodus. God goes through all of this work to deliver them out of the land of Egypt and set them free. And they go, I think we'll go back to Egypt. That's the danger. Now, as we will see, God promises not just to give them a reset and a, reset and a restoration and a, and a restore. He's actually going to do something to deal with the big issue. Remember what it said back in chapter 3? He says, when I bring you back to me, you will be mine. You will be faithful. You will love me as I have loved you. There's going to be a change of nature that comes. And we know as Christians that ultimately that's what the gospel is all about. That God hasn't just provided a law and said, if you keep this, you will live. He's come as a man and died in our place so that we might live. He's not just written a law on tablets of stone, like Paul says, but he's written a law through his Holy Spirit on our heart. It's not just outward conformity, but inward transformation. That's what Israel needs, and eventually, that's what God delivers in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, passages like tonight's are always intense, Lord, both because we can see the wickedness of Israel, but we cannot look at it long without seeing ourselves. We know our propensity. We know that when we sing the hymn, Lord, and we sing prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, that we find those same things in us. And so we thank you, Lord, that you've sent Jesus to set that right and that ultimately we will be freed from those parts of ourself. We will be restored. The flesh will be no more. We will be remade in the image of Christ. And in that day we will be truly free. We thank you for the grace that thought up that plan, for the loving sacrifice that paid for it, and for the presence of your Holy Spirit in the meantime that operates as a seal and a down payment of the hope that we have because we know that even when we are faithless, you remain faithful. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.